following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. All of us may remember a time when we were young in which we knew a state of being that was truly blissful, one of peace, one of serenity, one of freedom. As we have become adults, developing our personality, our language, our customs, our skills, we have forgotten that origin, that quality of mind that was free from all the complications that we know today. You may have noticed from the meditation that it could be difficult to remember. We practice with the mantra Raum Gaum mentally to recall a state of being that was unsullied. But unfortunately for us, there are gaps. We don't remember. We don't recall. Primarily because our acculturation to life has us hypnotized unaware, asleep. We don't really know who we were, except by hearsay, the reports of our parents or friends. But if we truly know ourselves, fundamentally, in the very depths of our consciousness, we'd remember everything. We would know who we were, where we came from, why we are what we are today, why we suffer, but more importantly, how to change, how to practically, fundamentally change our state of being from one of suffering into one of peace, understanding, wisdom, real knowledge, 
This is why the Greeks, as we see here in the Temple of Delphi, had a very famous maxim. Nothesioton in Greek, or in Latin, nosite ipsum, know thyself. In the full sense of the word, we can say homo nosite ipsum, human, know thyself, and you will know the universe and the gods. We seek to understand our life and also to realize what all the prophets and avatars experience. Beings like Moses, Krishna, Buddha, Isaiah, the prophets, relayed their direct experience of divinity. There were people like us. We had problems, or they had problems. They had sufferings. They had weakness. They were not born with an innate, miraculous gift. They built it from the ground up. They did so primarily by learning to pay attention to themselves. What in our psychology or their psychology creates so much pain, not only for themselves, but for others. In this way, by understanding the limitations of the psyche and also our own faults, we can become like them. Truly divine, connected beings with divinity, or in the Gnostic tradition, Christos, Christ. Christ is not only limited to Jesus of Nazareth. It is a universal, omniscient, and sacred identity, which is within all beings that has been expressed by all the avatars in diverse religions. And these religions were not meant to be just codes of belief, convictions without evidence. They were inherently practical, accessible, experiential. This is why in the Gospel of Thomas, we find the 17th verse, Yeshua, in Hebrew meaning the Savior, Jesus, the inner Christ, said, I shall give you what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no hand has touched, what has not arisen in the human heart. We can see from this that he is not talking about physical, sensorial experience. He's talking about mystical experience. All those stories of the masters ascending a mountain, like Moses on Sinai, to speak directly with divinity is represented here. They are symbols. We use a very profound symbol in our tradition, as you see here, to explain the map and levels and strata of being. We call it the Kabbalah. 
This is a Hebrew term. Kabel meaning to receive. It is direct experience. It is not belief. This tree, while it was mapped out amongst the 13th century Kabbalists, whether from France or Spain, is merely a articulation of an eternal truth. Specifically, these principles have always existed. They are divine and universal. But the Jewish mystical tradition codified it. But we know that in all religions, all traditions teach the same thing. In Buddhism, Kala Chakra, the wheel of becoming, or the wheel of samsara, the wheel of return, or Yggdrasil in Nordic, the tree of life among the Nordics. Many names, same truth. Because experience belongs to any being who is properly prepared and who can awaken their full potential to know these things for themselves. Here we see Jesus surrounded by 12 apostles. <clears throat> surrounded by uh, <clears throat> his 12 apostles. He is the center of this marvelous diagram. They represent these spheres. We see 10 from the bottom to the top, followed by three unknowables. In total, there are 13 aspects of being <clears throat> that we can experience practically for ourselves. Jesus, being a very high master, embodies and represents the very heights represented by in Hebrew Ein, Ein Sof, Ein Sof Aur the nothingness, the limitless and the limitless light or to use Gnostic terms the region of Barbello fire and light which are the elements of real Conscious divine experience, symbols, because through the fire of devotion and practice, we gain light, we see, we experience. The Gnostics also refer to these as aeons. An aeon in Greek means an age, a time that is very long, an eternity. And these spheres ascend from more dense physical levels of matter and energy to more rarefied and abstract and spiritual. The Mayans depicted them as the 13 cartoons, the 13 times. And in a sense, when you experience these dimensions for yourself through meditation, through mystical experience, you begin to see and witness that they have a temporality of their own. They are different ways of being. Obviously, we're in Malkut, the physical body, which in Hebrew means kingdom. But above that, we have 
levels relating to the fourth dimension, time and space. You also have the fifth dimension related to eternity, the world of dreams. This is where we go every night when we sleep. Through astral projection, whether consciously or unconsciously, whether intentionally or not, we go there every time we fall asleep. But beyond that, there are levels which are very sacred, inaccessible to people who do not fundamentally practice or change their psychology. But how do we actually experience these states for ourselves? How to actually achieve conscious astral projections, awakened states, knowing divinity. While we gave a very extensive course on dream yoga and astral travel available on our website and podcast, we can boil it down to something very simple. We call it conscience. The voice of the heart. Your intuition. Knowing how to act, to do, without having to think about it. Without having to deliberate, to choose. To learn how to be. Socrates is a great master who taught with his life and his philosophy this principle. The voice of the silence. The voice of the heart. This voice that we suffocate when we choose not to be, when we allow our mind to govern and dictate what we do. Our defects, anger, pride, fear, laziness, lust, impatience, divisiveness, aggression, whatever it may be. When we act on these negative elements, we do not act with intuition, which is that connection that we have to the divine within our very being, our spirit. The truth, <clears throat> God, for a lack of better words, who is inside, inside our interior, psychologically speaking, whom we can access if we follow that voice that sense. But obviously, if you studied philosophy, you saw that because Socrates followed this voice very intently, that he got himself into trouble. He was hated by everybody. The Athenians. Because by following his conscience, he revealed that real wisdom is not knowing or assuming that we know. It is not the intellect or sophistry of the mind. The sophists were his enemies, people who were very articulate, intellectual, great debaters, and yet they lacked intuition. They lacked conscience. They were not ethical. Socrates was ethical because he chose to engage people in honest discussion. He was martyred. 
This is the fate of any prophet, of any master who truly does that which is ordered of them from divinity. But, of course, it is difficult, especially if, as we did in our meditation, we've lost that thread when we were children, when we knew a state of being which was not so dense. Socrates called this inner voice his inner daemon, not to be confused with demons or black magic, but the voice of Christ, Christos, speaking through him and leading him to real knowledge. He stated in the Apology, documented by Plato, which was his trial where he defended himself, I am subject to a divine or supernatural experience which Miletus saw fit to travesty in his indictment, his prosecutor. It began in my early childhood, a sort of voice which comes to me, and when it comes, it always dissuades me from what I am proposing to do and never urges me on. It is this that debars me from entering public life, politics. When he knew something was wrong, he did not do it. He refused. He did not rely on other people to tell him what to do. But instead, he followed his heart. It is this sense which leads us on the path that leads to what is called initiation to enter the superior worlds, to enter the temples of divine mysteries, to know the truth for ourselves. But in our modern life, when the flame of inspiration arises, we tend to snuff it out. We do so through not feeding that aspiration by distraction, by forgetting who we really are, divine presence, who we really are, the essence, the soul. Obviously, anyone, any one of us who attends a school, a spiritual group, has an immense yearning, who feels some kind of pain, who wants to understand why it is we suffer so much in life and why we continue to be ignorant. We may study all these traditions or teachings or scriptures, but there's something fundamental that is lacking, which is understanding how our own actions shape our life, whether we're conscious of it or not. What guides our drive to pursue any study is precisely this, inquietude. It is like a hunch. It is a yearning. It is a fire which consumes us when we cannot sleep, when we look for answers, when we want crying out in our pain to know divinity. 
to find the balm of our Divine Mother, our Divine Father, our inner spirit, which can heal our affliction. Samuel and Vera gave a whole chapter about this in The Great Rebellion, which is an essential book. As the founder of the modern Gnostic tradition, he explained how to practically change. And I personally find this chapter very poignant, very direct, and very relevant. I'll read a few verses. There is no doubt that there is a big difference between thinking and feeling. This is indisputable. Among people, there is great indifference. This is the coldness of that which has no importance, of that which is superficial. The masses believe things of no importance to be important. They suppose that the latest fashion, the newest model car, or the question of basic salary is the only serious matter. They call serious the daily newspaper, a love affair, a sedentary life, a glass of alcohol, horse racing, bullfighting, car racing, gossip, slander, etc. Obviously, when the modern human beings hear anything about esotericism, they respond with terrible coldness, or they simply sneer, shrug their shoulders, and indifferently turn away. This is because it is not in their plans. It is not of interest within their social circles, nor is it sexually titillating enough. This psychological apathy, this frightening coldness, is based on two things. First, the most tremendous ignorance. Second, the absolute absence of spiritual inquietudes. A contact, an electric shock is needed. No one gave this to them at the store, nor is it found in what they believe to be serious, least of all in the pleasures of the bed. If someone were capable of giving an electric shock to an indifferent imbecile or a superficial woman, a spark in the heart, some peculiar reminiscence, an inexplicable something that is all too personal, then perhaps everything would be different. However, something displaces the, that secret voice, that initial hunch, that intimate yearning. This possibly could be a stupid triviality, a beautiful hat in some shop window, a delicious dessert at a restaurant, an encounter with a friend which later holds no importance for us, etc. Trivialities and nonsense, while having no particular transcendence, still have the power at any given moment to extinguish that first spiritual inquietude, that intimate longing, that insignificant spark of light, that hunch which unsettles us for a moment without our knowing why. If those who are currently living corpses, cold sleepwalkers in nightclubs, or simply umbrella salespeople in department stores on the avenue, had not suffocated their initial intimate uneasiness, they would be at this moment spiritual luminaries, adepts of the light, real humans in every sense of the word. A spark, a hunch, a mysterious whisper, an unexplainable sensation felt sometimes by the butcher on the corner, 
by a shoe shiner or a highly specialized doctor is all in vain. The foolishness of the personality always extinguishes the primary spark of light, later continuing with the coldness of the most frightful indifference. Unquestionably, people are swallowed up by the moon sooner or later. This truth is indisputable. We use the symbol of the moon to represent superficialness, mechanicity, repeated habits. The cycles of the moon are predictable. Likewise, our behaviors, our psychology, how we act day by day, how we behave. But not only that, but our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions. If you meditate, reviewing your daily life, you will find that your thoughts are the same thoughts you had yesterday. Your feelings were the same feelings you had yesterday. And your being, your actions, are the same. They are repetitions. This is samsara in Buddhism. Cycling, repetition, but we tend not to ever ask, why do we repeat? And how can we act in a revolutionary way? We do that by first observing the fact, by looking in ourselves to see what in us is going to repeat the same problems. Because when you look, you can separate and then you can decide. That is the essence, the soul, looking directly within, separating from the mind, the personality, and all those things which keep us extinguished and spiritually expired. There is no one at some point in his life or her life has not felt an impulse, a strange disquietude, Unfortunately, anything from the personality, however stupid it may seem, is sufficient to reduce to cosmic dust that which in the silence of the night disturbs us for a moment. The moon always wins these battles. She feeds and nourishes herself precisely on our own weaknesses. The moon is terribly mechanical, completely devoid of all solar inquietudes. or completely devoid of all solar inquietudes, the lunar humanoid is incoherent and moves in a dream world. If a person were to do what no one does, which is to re revive the intimate uneasiness that arises, perhaps in the mystery of some night, there is no doubt that in the long run, such a person would assimilate solar intelligence. And as a result, would become a solar human being. This is precisely what the sun wishes, yet these ice-cold, apathetic, and indifferent lunar shadows are always swallowed up by the moon. Then comes the leveling of death. Death levels everything. Any living corpse without solar uneasiness gradually degenerates terribly until it is devoured by the moon. The sun wants to create human beings, 
It performs these exercises in the laboratory of nature. Such experiments, unfortunately, have not produced good results. The moon swallows up people. When we study the Gnostic doctrine, we speak abundantly about Christ, the Son, S-U-N and S-O-N. Christ is an energy, a potential, a force that we need to activate through practice, through discipline, through meditation, through runes, through the sacred rites of rejuvenation. These exercises help us to inspire us so that with that energy active and the solar divinity activating our consciousness, we have fuel by which to drive our spiritual car. It is this energy that helps us to seek and to find. We have the opening verses of the Gospel of Thomas, whereby we see verses reflected in the canonical Gospels. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. While this has a literal significance of finding a physical institution, the truth is that this is psychological, fundamentally. It is a symbol of internally verifying the doctrine and not merely having some adherence to an institution, which obviously there's an application there. You really find the teachings when you live it. You find it when you experience it. You may not have a physical group, and you can find the doctrine. Fortunately with us, we have the internet, and we have podcasts, so people can access knowledge more openly. But the truth is that even with these resources, we don't find the teaching until we witness it for ourselves. And when we witness it for ourselves, we are filled with doubt. Especially in the beginning. Like Thomas poking his finger into the wound of the resurrected Jesus. And this is a beautiful symbol. Not of cynicism or skepticism, but of seeking to verify the truth. So after Christ resurrected, the apostles told Thomas, he is back. But he said, I will not believe it until I see it for myself. This is not pessimism. It is prudence. To not accept anything unless we've experienced it. Because you may seek and find knowledge, but not know it for yourself. as we find here in this gospel. And he said, Whoever discovers what these sayings mean will not taste death. Yeshua said, Seek and do not stop seeking until ye find. When you find, you will be troubled. When you are troubled, you will marvel and rule over all. Real spirituality is uncomfortable. It is not 
pleasant when we personally see in ourselves our own agency in our suffering. But when you are troubled, you will marvel and rule over all. Meaning if you overcome the ordeals of the spiritual path, you in turn can enter initiation. The gospel also speaks about the nature of heaven, which is a state of being. Not only a place within nature or dimensionality, but our psychology. It is easy to externalize, obviously. This is why Yeshua said, if your leaders tell you, look, the kingdom is in heaven, then the birds of heaven will precede you. If they say it's in the sea, then the fish will precede you. But the kingdom is inside you, and it is outside you. When you know yourselves, then you will be known, and you will understand that you are children of the living Father. But if you do not know yourselves, then you dwell in poverty, and you are poverty. When you will know yourselves, then you will be known. This is a very direct statement. When you awaken consciousness in the physical and the internal planes, you will know and you will be known. Those initiates of the White Lodges watch everything we do. So when you awaken in the dream state and are exploring that dimension, you may have and will have many experiences where masters from different pantheons come to you. They know our seriousness, our sincerity, if we are really working in this path. And, magically, they come to our aid. They inspire us, they teach us, they guide us. And obviously there are levels among those masters. But obviously, whatever our level, we have to learn to give and to receive. And in this way, you will understand that you are children of the living Father, meaning when we are awake. When you're awake in the astral plane or beyond, you are like a child. You are the essence, the soul that is learning to discover the truth. And that we no longer believe in a dead father, a dogma, but we speak directly face to face with the being, with God. But if we don't know ourselves, we dwell in poverty. That poverty is not material. It is spiritual, psychological. We gain riches, spiritually speaking, by transforming our mind. By becoming children again. Here we see the Master Jesus, or Abaramento, his sacred name, as cited in the Pisces Sophia, with a group of children instructing. And in the Gospel of Thomas, we find a very powerful verse about what an initiate is like. Initiates are like children. They are innocent. They are pure. They are not complicated. If you overcome ordeals in the astral plane, these masters often appear as children. 
You conquer certain tests that they give you related to the four elements, related to your life. When you enter their temples, after having conquered, they come to you as Kerubim, children, divine beings. And the beauty that they exude is indescribable because they are the innocence of Eden, the primeval state from which we came from and which we seek to return. This is why it states in the Gospel of Thomas, Yeshua said, A person old in days will not hesitate to ask a little child seven days old about the place of life, and the person will live. For many of the first will be last and become a single one. Days are Kabbalistic. They're symbols. A day or the seven days of Genesis are symbols of how the soul becomes perfected. It is not a literal history. A person who is old doesn't refer to physical age, psychological age. Whether we're young or old, physically, is not relevant. Psychologically, we are very old. We are heavy and dense, complicated. We inherit many elements psychologically that do not originate from this physical life, but from previous existences. So all of us are very old. We're jaded. But we can become like in the Old Testament, Abraham, who 99 years old, eventually found the path. It's a beautiful symbol of how we enter the spiritual path itself. And we seek to gain wisdom from these children, these masters who become innocent, and who seek to teach us how to do the same. And this is the essence of spiritual life, to really live, to be truly a human being in the full sense of the word. Many of those who are first will be last and become a single one. Who are those first and those last? The last, or better said, the first are those people or those who approaching any spiritual study may feel that they know. They think because they've read that they know about astral travel or divine experiences and who become inflated, pharisaical, egotistical. But those people have to become innocent, have to reduce that pride into dust, to become nothing so that the being can express. That is how we become a single one, a perfected master, a unitary divine creature. In the process, we learn to explore the hidden and the revealed. The beginning of the path is self-observation, to know how to pay attention, to know how to examine our thoughts, our feelings, and our desires, to separate like an actor, or better said, a, a director watching an actor. You are the filmmaker, the consciousness who is watching, and then the actor are the different faults or conditions of mind that we possess. 
This is the sense that opens up the invisible world for us. Not only physically, but also in dreams. This is why the Gospel of Thomas states, Yeshua said, Know what is in front of your face, and what is hidden from you will be disclosed. There is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. Our unconsciousness is the, the hidden, the unrevealed, the unknown. But when you look with light, with your consciousness into your mind, you start to see what is actually there, what is present. And this is how the path of ethics within spiritual studies begins. As you're observing your mind and paying attention, you learn that it is necessary not only to be mindful, but to know how to transform. You can see your anger in a moment of clarity, but you can still act on it. You don't transform it. But if you're paying attention, observing yourself, you learn how to follow that voice of conscience, to know how to behave when we are being criticized or gossiped about or lied to. Transform the situation. This is why the gospel continues. His students asked him and said to him, Do you want us to fast? How shall we pray? Should we give to charity? What diet should we observe? Many people ask these questions when they approach a school, any tradition, whether Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, whatever it may be. People want to know external things. What physical austerity should I perform? What practices should I do? How should I pray? What mantras should I recite? What food should I eat? But Yeshua said, do not lie and do not do what you hate. All things are disclosed before heaven. There is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. Nothing covered that will, not, that will remain undisclosed. Do not lie and do not do what you hate. When you're following your conscience, you begin to discover that you do things that you do not like. And it's very uncomfortable. It's very unpleasant. When you see in yourself how you have defects or egos or behaviors which are complicated and create problems. And seeing that division in yourself can be very alarming, to say the least. And this is why real spirituality is very difficult. Because you see that as much as you aspire to be noble and holy, you have a demon inside. Or better said, multiple demons. But the beginning is, do not lie. When you see something in yourself that is unpleasant, meditate on it. Comprehend it. And do not act on it. Do not do what you hate. Because everything we do is registered on a record. It is internal. You find even in Islam, they speak abundantly in the Quran about how our very deeds are written in a book. It's a symbol. Or, even on the day of judgment, our very skin will speak out for what we have done. This is why we have to study ourselves. We have to comprehend a very distinct difference between knowledge and comprehension.
Salmonvier stated in Treaties of Revolutionary Psychology, knowledge and comprehension are different. Knowledge is of the mind, comprehension is of the heart. Intellectual knowledge is insufficient. Even having some basic knowledge of our personality, our language, our customs, who we are, is not enough. We may have knowledge in our mind that alcohol is bad. And yet, if you observe the life of an alcoholic, they continue. What changes is comprehension. What changes our psychology is understanding. Because it comes from the voice of the silence. When you understand your very soul, what behaviors and actions are harmful, we stop. We don't repeat. Samsara ends. And therefore we experience, in the Buddhist sense, nirvana, cessation, stillness. As we're studying ourselves and gaining self-knowledge, we moment by moment approach death. Instant by instant, from our birth to our present moment, we accumulate experiences, knowledge, understandings, our language, our personality. These things are born <clears throat> in time and will eventually die. We will not take them with us in the grave. What we will take with us is our psychology, our state of mind. If we are filled with pride, anger, fear, lust, these things will not end when we physically die. They continue. They are matter. They are energy. They are perception. They have life in a negative sense. We call them egos, selves, defects, eyes, vices. Those psychological states determine our trajectory for the negative in the sense that moment by moment we make decisions if we're paying attention to ourselves. If we identify with ego, we enter suffering, we descend to lower levels of being. But if we pay attention and observe, if we consciously choose to follow the voice of our heart and learn to navigate our own internal world, to act for the benefit of others, we ascend. It is always a choice. And we focus on this moment due to spiritual unquietudes because we feel a yearning to want to change the situation and to do something about it. We call this the level of being. And we always ask ourselves this question again and again. What is our level of being? Do we want to stay where we're at or do we want to change? Do we want to transcend? Our level of being determines our life. This is why some of you are stated in the Treaties of Revolutionary Psychology. Nobody can deny the fact that there are different social levels. There are church-going people, people in brothels, farmers, businessmen, etc. In a like manner, 
there are different levels of being. Whatever we are internally, munificent or mean, generous or miserly, miserly, violent or peaceful, chaste or lustful, attracts the various circumstances of life. This is something you can verify if you've practiced this teaching. If you're practicing transmutation exercises, pranayama, prayer, alchemy, meditation, you see the result. What is your quality of life? And in the beginning, we work in this path because we want to cease suffering for ourselves. But eventually to ascend to even more refined degrees, we have to work for the spirituality of others. And the only way to do that is by psychologically establishing that foundation. This is why we have to be sincere. We have to be brutally honest. When you observe yourself, you find you are a universe in microcosm. You have good and bad, angel, angelic and demonic, and sometimes indifferent. While it's important to be, uh, obviously, in society, we cultivate certain habits or follow certain norms or have a certain job and, and we maintain our appearance. While these things have a certain practical utility with a job or whatever it may be, these things are really superficial. They do not really register the full character of a person. Because psychologically, we have to wash the inside of our mind. Here we find a verse from the Gospel of Thomas which emphasizes a very important point, which is, which is repeated in the Gospels, the canonical Gospels. Yeshua said, Why do you wash the outside of the cup? Don't you understand that the one who made the inside also made the outside? It's a basic tenet. We can be very cultured and refined, knowledgeable, have the mannerisms and spirituality and of spirituality or personality or etc. But what matters is our mind. What is our quality of being? What is our state? We all try to some degree to make a certain impression on others. To have a certain result. And usually it's because of desire. Maybe we feel that we want to be liked and respected, admired, welcomed. And this is obviously a very natural tendency. But as we begin to know ourselves with self-observation, we have to let it go. Whatever people will think, they will think. What matters is, are we connected to our being? Because divinity is the source of integrity, of real unity. And divinity is the one who makes impact on our communities. That only comes about if we wash the inside of our mind, if we're meditating, observing ourselves, and changing day by day. Because if we don't, we get worse. And personally, if I'm relating this verse especially, because this is something that I've experienced. It's given me a lot of faith. Here we see the Master Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying before his passion. And if you've seen other depictions or even films, you see that he's in great turmoil. 
in a lot of pain. He says, Father, if it be possible, let not pass this cup of bitterness from me, but not my will, but thine be done. Here we see something similar in the Gospel of Thomas. Yeshua said, if you bring forth what is within you, what you have will save you. If you have nothing within you, what you do not have within will kill you. This is, again, psychological. And personally, I remember at one point in my life when I first started this teaching, I was given a very heavy ordeal. I almost physically died. And I remember at that time, <clears throat> in being in the hospital, praying and meditating, and internally in the astral plane, I was being assisted. Where they basically said this, if you are virtuous, if you want to change, and if you do it, you won't die. Obviously, we have karma. We call them the consequences of our former deeds. And all of us have debts because we made a lot of mistakes. And so at this point in my life, when I found the doctrine, they told me, if you don't change, we can't help you. You will have to go. And I prayed. I fought <clears throat> psychologically, internally through certain ordeals. Unfortunately, with the help of God, that didn't happen. If you bring forth what is within you, what you have will save you. But if we have nothing, what option is there? It can seem very dark and dismal and very scary. But in those moments, if you're very sincere, like in the Muslim oral tradition, they say in the Hadith, if you, come, if you turn to me, I will come walking to you. Allah, the divine. If you come running, I come flying to you. Divinity makes sacrifices and has tremendous mercy. But obviously we have to do our part. And have to be willing to do what is truly right, even if it is difficult. This is why our internal states determine our consequences in life. Here we see the angel, archangel Mikael, in Hebrew meaning he who is like God, or who is like God holding a sword in the scale of justice. We chose this image because he represents a archetype, something that we should follow in ourselves. To be like divinity, we need to have balance, like the scale, the mind and heart in balance, and the sword of insight to cut through illusion. You may see in some Catholic paintings of Michael slaying demons or rejecting demons it's the same principle when you have insight into your own pride you don't act on it and eventually with meditation you eliminate it and with uh, the scales you first have to have equilibrium psychologically mind and heart thought and feeling have to be in perfect balance 
We learn that through meditation, through serenity. It is in this way that we are armored for the worst ordeals that we could face, the inevitable. And this is why Samalanvar stated the following in Treaties of Revolutionary Psychology. The best weapon that a human being can use in life is a correct psychological state. One can disarm beasts and unmask traitors by means of appropriate internal states. Wrong internal states convert us into defenseless victims of human perversity. You must learn to face the most unpleasant events of practical life with an appropriate internal uprightness. You must not become identified with any event. Remember that everything passes away. You must learn to look at life like a movie. Thus you shall receive the benefits. You must not forget that if you do not eliminate mistaken internal states from your psyche, then events of no value could bring you disgrace. Unquestionably, each external event needs its appropriate fare, that is, its precise psychological state. So if you're paying attention, observing your heart, following your intuition, you learn to act moment by moment in the right way. And that right way is not something that is dictated by anyone to anyone. It's something you know. And the particular karma of your life, your circumstances, your job, your career, your marriage, your family life, your friendships, your political, um, or your relationships with friends or co-workers, in whatever sphere of life, that is how we navigate ourselves. But as we're self-observing, we tend to have um, a resistance when you're looking in the mirror of your mind at yourself and you're looking at your ego, your defects, the ego fights back, resists. You're directing attention within and as you're self-observing, you find that it can become cloudy like we see in this image. Sometimes the mind, or better said, the mind always rejects our efforts because the subconsciousness, the ego knows that it will die through this work. And so we have a battle in a sense. But obviously, in a moment of life where we have an ordeal, maybe it's at our job, something challenging happens that tests our psychological caliber. You find that the tendency of our ego is to act outwardly. If we're looking inside, we're observing ourselves. Anger, pride, fear, these things externalize, like to blame others. That attitude has to change. To know ourselves, we have to take full responsibility of what we have inside. This is why Jesus stated in the Gospel of Thomas, they said to him, tell us who you are so that we may believe in you. He said to them, you examine the face of heaven and earth, but you have not come to know the one who is in your presence. And you do not know how to examine this moment. This is the key. You want to know you're in a Christ? Examine your mind. Examine the moment. Instant by instant. Be mindful. State by state. Whatever occurs, whatever emerges, whatever happens. Observe it. And with time, with practice, you begin to recognize that continuity as it becomes more consistent, such as we find in the nine stages of concentration and Buddhism, as we have here on the wall. 
where this monk is ascending up a winding path to the heights of perfect serenity. Perfect self-observation, perfect remembrance. And so we have to ask ourselves, who takes advantage of wisdom? This is an interesting verse. And I reflected on this in relation to this talk because there are um, some interesting circumstances with, uh, you know, obviously growing up in a spiritual group. Maybe our parents had a teaching or tradition who maybe we grew up in Christianity or Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, whatever it may be. And again, despite the plethora an access to wisdom of all continents from all times that we have recorded. We still feel, we still find that people suffer. It is an unprecedented age where we can open up our iPhone and find the Gnostic Gospels or any scripture. There are Buddhist tantras that are now being published for the first time that have been physically inaccessible to people but have been accessible to initiates like Salman Vior, who even commented on scriptures that didn't get published yet, but he knew them internally. Very profound thing. But for us, we now have the knowledge. We have the internet. We have books, lectures, scriptures, instructions, workshops, meditation practices, things that can help. But in the end, they're not going to guarantee that we know ourselves because we have to bring that to our own practice. Now in this verse you find that there is a treasure that is hidden in a field who is left or inherited to a son. And this is a beautiful symbol of inheriting traditions. I'll read the verse for you. Yeshua said, the kingdom is like a person who had a treasure hidden in his field. He did not know it and when he died he left it to his son. The son did not know about it. He took over the field and sold it. The buyer was plowing and found the treasure and began to lend money at interest to whomever he wished. All of us inherit traditions. If we're uh, from a secular family, even our North American ideals and attitudes are very much rooted in a Judeo-Christian basis. Whether or not people are conscious of it or not. But for people, like if we've grown up in a family of being Jewish or Christian or Muslim or Buddhist, we inherit profound wisdom. I mean, these scriptures are so deep, whether from all religions and traditions, and they're very practical if we know how to apply them. But unfortunately, these things tend to be buried. You have to excavate them. You have to extract it from your own practice and experience to know what these teachings are providing. Because with time, people inherit religions and traditions but they don't unearth the real meaning. But then there is one who's a a buyer who takes over the field, maybe who comes to Gnosticism or Judaism, and by plowing in the field, by working practically in the earth, Malkut, the physical world, applying its teachings, you find the wisdom inherent in it. And then one can begin to lend money at interest to whomever he wished. Obviously, this is not physical money. It's spiritual money. Because symbolically in dreams, if you get money, it's because you're 
performing good deeds and you get paid with experiences. That is called dharma, divine blessings. So we may even be born into a Gnostic family. So, I mean, I know plenty of missionaries and students who are born into a household that practices the Gnostic teachings of Salman Vior. And some of the kids don't take advantage of it. But obviously we, have, we respect people's will. That's the important thing. And the parents should do the same. But some people have to fight and to suffer and to bleed to really find the teaching, but also appreciate it too. And this is why <clears throat> and how we enter renunciation. We chose an image of Buddha Gautama Shakyamuni when he renounced his princely life by cutting off his hair. This is when he became a renunciate, <clears throat> an ascetic. He went to the wilderness to meditate day by day, living on a grain of rice. And people obviously interpret this literally, but it's a symbol. How psychologically or physically, he um, renounced his own attachments. This is why Yeshua stayed in the Gospel of Thomas. You who have found the world and become wealthy, renounce the world. This wealth, again, is not material. There are many people among spiritual groups who may have wealth or amassed a fortune who are not attached, who don't care about status, about bank accounts. The truth is that as we are renouncing our attachments to things in life, divinity provides whatever we need on whatever fundamental level. What matters is that no matter our circumstances, as we're learning to know ourselves, we renounce those uh, psychological states which make us very weak and worldly. It's good to know how to navigate the world, but there are many people who know how to do that without integrity. So the truth is that if we are changing inside then our physical circumstances do change. Our level of being determines our life. In conclusion, if you want to study more about this topic, you can study two books by Glorian Publishing, or from Glorian Publishing, by Salman Vior. I quoted some of their excerpts at length. It is Treaties of Revolutionary Psychology and the Great Rebellion. Very powerful texts, studied together. If you meditate on them, they'll provide great insights. And lastly, we have some resources on meditation. Uh, these, two these two courses above are from Glorian, Meditation Essentials and Meditation Without Exertion. And lastly, we have uh, our courses on Gnostic Meditation and Sufi Principles of Meditation. If you really want to know the fundamental depth of who you are or who we are, we learn to meditate. That is the primary way. So at this point in time, I invite you to ask questions. Sure. You had mentioned earlier on in, in some of the earlier slides something about um, avoiding death or that we wouldn't have to go or traverse death. It, it, 
obviously didn't mean the physical death, right? It was referring to a different kind of death. More importantly, the second death that someone here talks about. So all of us have ego, which is our connection to the infernal worlds or the hell realms. If we don't eliminate consciously those defects, willingly, then nature follows this process, meaning we eventually get recycled. Samsara. And so the negative turn of that wheel is called devolution, meaning the soul enters more inferior states until entering the submerged mineral kingdom, the ego is eventually purified. And then the essence that was trapped is free. The problem is that that path does not result in mastery. You don't gain self-knowledge at a very high degree going that way. And also it's very painful, very distressing. You look at all the cosmologies of the world or scriptures who talk about the infernal planes and they are truly terrifying. Not only so just by reading it, obviously, but when you experience it, when you see in the dream state those dimensions and what they're like. And it's good to have that experience because you get to see what will happen if we don't change. So you will not taste death by following the work, meaning this is the way to consciously eliminate the ego and not be swallowed by nature, by the moon. So there's two ways. Moses said, before you I set the way of life and the way of death. Choose therefore in thy seed. Seed of your essence, the seed of your creative energy too. Because our work with the energies of sexuality is what determines everything. Just to, to continue that, like I'm reading a book about, that's called In Love With The World by um, Rinpoche. And it's, and he talks about how he went through, was experiencing death, like almost a physical death. And then he was able to get what he calls luminous, some, he's a, it was a period of time during the middle of dying that you have an opportunity, if you're conscious, if you haven't passed out, to experience basically enlightenment or bliss or that reconnection oneness. But like, and he was describing how that's that's the ultimate teacher, essentially death. So I was just was thinking like how that's death is actually something that we can use as a, as a way to to reconnect with that you know that inner divinity within. So. Yeah, I mean, physical death obviously is a significant moment. Someone here said there are three moments in life that are the most important: birth, marriage, and death. Birth, life, and our physical conclusion. And so in Buddhism, they teach how to consciously take advantage of death. And that moment by moment, we live knowing that we will die. And, and we prepare for it. Impermanence. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that if we don't prepare now, when we die, we won't know where we go. So if we train ourselves, we awaken within dreams, we awaken within death. Birth and death, or better said, death and sleep, are in Greek mythology, brothers are brothers, Thanatos and Hypnos. And we do talk about it in dream yoga, but um, if you, again, if you're asleep here, you won't know what will happen when you die. 
And if you're conscious when you die, you have much more agency than if you didn't. You can speak face to face with the hierarchs of the law, Anubis, in the Egyptian mythology, the gods of judgment, and you can talk about your trajectory, what you want and what you need to do. And your being will help you because if you're helping other people, then divinity will give you insights like that. And I believe they talk about that in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, especially the Bardos. And if you are gaining light here and now, then the transition will be very easy or easier. Depends on karma and what we do. So we talk about death in a lot of different ways in this tradition. Can you clarify between the second death that you mentioned earlier and ego death or psychological death, which we see as a positive thing? Yeah, so psychological death of the ego is good because you eliminate pride, hatred, fear, lust. You extract the soul that's trapped in those elements and you awaken. You develop mastery. The second death occurs when we choose not to get rid of our pride, our ego, our fear, our laziness, our defects. Then we have no choice but to be taken down to a very specific type of processing plant, recycling plant of nature. We call that hell. And in that state, the ego gets disintegrated against our will. But that process is very painful because it takes a long time, depending on the magnitude of our our actions, our defects, how dense they are, to be eliminated. But psychological death is preferred, even though it's unpleasant, because you do so willingly and you gain knowledge, you gain wisdom, and then you integrate all the parts of your soul that were trapped And because you're doing it intentionally, you gain self-knowledge, mastery. So that's the difference. Yes. You also reference some of the higher levels of the tree of life, those states of being. If we're able through meditation to achieve at least a moment of ego death, where we can extract our our soul, our consciousness out of those egotistical, uh, you know, vicious states, Will we enter into those higher states or where will we go? Are we going to enter the illuminating void and achieve enlightenment in that moment? Or what happens? Depends. Uh, Our being is the one who manages those experiences. Obviously, greater results occur when we make great efforts. Divinity rewards us according to our deeds. You could be working on an ego here, Malkut, the physical body. And you can enter through astral projection into Hod, the astral world. And then from that state, you can even go higher. You can even pray to your Divine Mother. Show me the truth. Take me to the Absolute. And in some cases, she'll take you without you even asking. Because she knows us even before we act, what we will do. And that's a blessing. It's a blessing to receive that guidance. 
And that is managed by divinity. What experiences we reach according to the tree of life is always negotiated by our innermost, our spirit, our inner Christ. And if we have the Dharma, we go. But yeah, there are levels of experiences and dreams and internal states, and that always occurs when, um, when we've earned it and when we're ready. But yeah, fortunately for us, we have divinity to manage that. And sometimes having an experience could be, even though it's very positive, can have consequences for us if we identify too much. In Buddhism, there are some who talk about being drunk on nirvana. Maybe having a beautiful experience, even approaching the illuminating void. And then being proud. Look what I experienced. We have to watch out for that. We, you know, Be very careful. Because that pride will take us out. And will keep us down here. Along that comment on the illuminating void, um, is that what the person experienced when everything becomes really bright and there's a high vibrational um, burning feeling, sensation? The absolute is what we call the eternal abstract space. The void is like an ocean a dark abyss, but which is truly light. It is a form of illumination, but to our eyes, it is black. And it almost appears like the rippling of water with some luminosity, but eternal, just space. You may experience it if you're, say, meditating in the astral plane. Your Divine Mother could take you to that state. So it's not sensation. Sensation relates to Yasod, which is our vital body. And the vital body is the energetic vehicle that allows us to experience sensation. Our physical body would not have life if it weren't for our vital body. Truly, to go to the Absolute, we have to rely on our Divine Mother. And that transcends even the Tree of Life. All the vehicles. So all these spheres represent vehicles of being. In synthesis, we have Malkut, the physical body. Yasod, our vital energies, our vital body. Hod, which is our astral body, where we experience emotion. Netzach, the mental body, where we navigate in the mental world. It's where we experience thought. Beyond that is Nirvana. And here, the ego cannot enter. Tiferet. Tiferet is the beauty of the human soul. And in that state of nirvana, you see many masters there with their tunics of luminosity. You see the flow of life, cause and effect, movement, the wind, the trees, everything you see in ripples, causes and effects. But this is beyond the ego. The ego can't go there. Beyond that, you have gibra, which is the divine soul. Consciousness, which is really the root of conscience. So everything we talked about today relates to Geburah. Because she, or the divine soul, our conscience, is the one who organizes the scales of justice in ourselves. She's the source of intuition. She's the vehicle by which the spirit acts. Chesed, which is mercy in Kabbalah. Beyond that, we have the top trinity, which is Keter, Chokmah, Bina, Father, Son, 
Holy Spirit in Christianity. Or in Hebrew, the crown, wisdom, and intelligence. The intelligence of God. Binah is the Divine Mother, but also the Divine Father too. Masculine, feminine. Elohim in Hebrew. Chokmah is Christ. And Keter is the Father, the Supreme. The Absolute is beyond the Tree of Life. In a sense, we can say that Keter is like Malkut to the Ein Sof, the Limitless. But you can go there. You pray to your Divine Mother, take me to the Absolute. If we're serious, we'll go. And in that state, when you're faced with the void, you feel like your identity is being annihilated. The ego on that threshold, say between the astral plane and entering like a portal into the void, it's like you're entering an abyss when yourself is being reduced to nothing. And the ego becomes terrified. And that fear can knock you out of the experience. You lose it. You come back, you fall back in the astral plane, and then you maybe return to your body. Salman Vior had that experience three times when he was 18. He meditated, he prayed, he approached the threshold of the, the void. And he always stumbled like he got identified or attached or afraid. But eventually, on the last time, he did what he called the great jump. Leap right in. And in the annihilation of his self, his singular identity, he became the true identity of the universe or the cosmos, beyond the universe even. He became a forest, a butterfly, a planet, a galaxy, a star. When you lose your identity as a self, you gain the true identity, which is universal. And therefore, you become a drop in the ocean of the universal life, free in its movement. That is the, exactly. Because this universe is governed by duality. You even have, you even have three pillars, right and left. The scales. Only when they're balanced in equilibrium through this middle pillar, do you go up the source. And if, if you have that experience, but you fail, be patient. Just keep, Keep working because it's not easy to let go. It'll be uh, terrifying to the mind. Yeah, yeah. Samuel Vior even said that um, he said that Satan took me out, his own ego, his own mind. So in trying to know himself, he eventually had to let go. And if you notice, if you follow the trajectory of the Sephiroth going from the bottom up, you find that you abandon more material and dense senses of self. Obviously, the physical body is very apparent. Many people think they are the body. Energy or vitality, emotions even, thoughts. When you go up, you find that these qualities in the psyche become more rarefied. They're harder to pinpoint. It's easy. We can point out our thoughts and emotions generally, but our will is more subtle. Willpower to do. You can sense it by your strength of will to do something like a project or even planning to come to a class. Like we, we use our will to a degree, but beyond that more rarefied levels until as you reach the top and even enter the beyond, there is no self, no singular identity, but there's just universal perception. 
cosmic. That is Christ. The limitless light, the limitless, and the nothing. So you say in the lecture we need to know our unconscious self. Um, maybe that's egotistical defects, pride, fear, etc. And yet, if we want to enter this illuminating void, we have to let go of ourself. So it seems kind of like a contradiction. <coughs> we want to not be ourself, but at the same time, we want to know our unconscious self. Can you clarify that? Yeah, good question. So the self that we identify with is klipot. Ego. Klipot in Hebrew means shells. These are our defects because our pride, our anger, our vanity, our lust are shells that capture and trap our soul, the essence, the light. We have to abandon the ego. But to abandon it, you need to know it. You can't get out of a prison cell if you don't have the key or if you don't know that you're in a cage. When you know that you're trapped in an ego like anger, you can find your way out. And when you get out of it, then you experience freedom. But obviously there are levels of self. The ego inhabits Malkut, Yasod, Hod, and Netzach. The physical body, the vital body, the emotions, and the, and the mind. This is the realm of uh, ego, our terrestrial self. But to go higher, you have to know your limitations. Look at them, understand them, and eliminate them. Because... You can experience the void. You could have a vacation, but it doesn't mean that we're a citizen there. We learn to do that by, or we become conscious citizens of the cosmos by getting rid of all the baggage. Because the ego keeps us weighed down. They're more dense. And if you experience the higher regions, you feel less self in an egotistical sense. But there is a real legitimate identity there the being, which is not what we think of here. It's something much more beautiful, profound, and real. There's so many examples in our culture, even in, in like 80s fantasy movies and stuff of, of what you're describing. I mean, it's, it's just, it's crazy to me how many different ways of describing the same concept of duality into one. You know, like great, the Dark Crystal, for example, the two different races, you've got the, you know, the Skatsis representing the ego and the desire to cheat death, and then you have the old ones, the, the all whatever, that are in line with nature, and at the great conjunction, the two become one, what was once unsundered and undone, become, the two become one, and it's a children's movie from the 80s, and it talks about this, what you're describing, it's, just, it's crazy to me. And the collective unconsciousness of humanity has been um, expressing more of these ideas, but often without an intentional way. Now, the best thing is when we study art or, you know, any cultural phenomenon, that we look at the, intention, the intentionality behind it. For example, there are stories, old folklores and fantasy tales that teach this, such as Pinocchio. It's a very objective, initiatic story written by an initiate. Carlos Collodi was describing how a wooden puppet, who is a slave of the forces of nature, becomes a true human being, escapes klipot in order to go to the heights, even swallowed biblically by a whale. This is the resurrection. 
So he becomes a true human being because of the blue fairy. who, Because of his good deeds, he accomplishes it, his divine mother. So, a lot of symbols. Joseph Campbell in the story of the, yeah, I mean, that's obviously so. Yeah, and those myths are very profound. And we explain them through Kabbalah. Kabbalah teaches everything. Any other questions? So, if there are no more questions, we can conclude. Uh, I believe the next lecture will continue with the Gnostic Gospels. We'll talk about our divine potential. It'll be the focus of uh, the three sciences of the Gnostic tradition. Kabbalah, alchemy, and psychology. So, uh, thank you all for coming. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.